If you have your Bibles with you, why don't you go ahead and open them up to uh, the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. We've been working our way through the book, and uh, this is uh, week number five. We're already halfway through chapter two. It's like a blinding speed, (laughs) moving so quickly. It's a short book. It's only six chapters long, so um, I'm personally finding uh, a lot of people coming to me and talking about uh, they're having a, a new perspective on the book of Ephesians and how we see our identity in who we are in Christ, who he told us we were, uh, that we were chosen, that we were redeemed, and we've got this inheritance, and God's telling us, you're a winner in me because of what I did for you. And this morning, uh, we're going to look specifically what he has to say about now that we understand who we are, what we're supposed to do with that. There is a great potential in our society that we base our identity and we base our values on what culture says we are and what culture's voices find valuable and validated, we tend to gravitate towards because we're surrounded by cultural voices. So culture's values and culture's voices begin speaking into our lives instead of what God says, and pretty soon we find ourselves kind of chiming in with culture. Let me give you an example. There's a lot of reruns on television of a, a television show called Friends that was out in the 90s, real popular. You can get it on A&E or TNT, and, and you find yourself saying, wow, those guys are really good writers, let alone the actors that are on the program. It's funny stuff, but it's really base humor. And you can find yourself laughing along with it and, and the things that they find themselves caught up in. And you could place that in 2013 in one of the television shows today and find yourself engaged in the humor and then go, whoa, wait, put the brakes on. This is the very stuff that God said I wasn't supposed to be involved in. And pretty soon you find yourself with cultural voices and cultural values speaking into you as opposed to what God says. Now I know there's one very particular reason why that's true of us. And it's true of every human. And the one particular reason is because we're fallen. We have a sin nature. And so those things speak to our base nature, our base values. It resonates with us. Here's a few examples of that. We we have a tendency to uh, push the boundaries. I shared with you a couple weeks ago about my visit with a state trooper. I was on my way to church and um, a little red light started flashing, okay? So I had that encounter, and I realized it's human nature to push the boundaries of the laws. Well, I want you to know that your pastor's not the only one to do that. Other pastors have done that as well. As a matter of fact, somebody sent me this story this week, and uh, I want to share it with you. I don't normally read stories, but I don't want you to miss the details on this particular one. Not because it vindicates me, but Okay. <laughs> All right, so here we go. Billy Graham was returning to Charlotte, North Carolina after a speaking engagement. When his plane arrived, there was a limousine there to transport him to his home. As he prepared to get into the limo, he stopped and spoke to the driver. You know, he said, I'm 87 years old and I have never, ever driven a limousine. Would you mind if I drove it for a while? The driver said, no problem, have at it. Billy gets into the driver's seat and they head off down the highway. A short distance away sat a rookie state trooper operating his very first speed trap. The long black limo went flying by him doing 70 and a 55. The trooper pulled out and easily caught the limo, and then he got out of his patrol car to begin the procedure. 
The young trooper walked up to the driver's door, and when the glass was rolled down, he was surprised to see who was driving. He immediately excused himself and went back to his car and called his supervisor. He said, I know we're supposed to enforce the law, and I've been sent out here to to do that, but I also know that important people are given certain courtesies, and I need to know what I should do because I've just stopped a very important person. Supervisor asked, is it the governor? The young trooper said, no, he's more important than that. Supervisor said, oh, so it's the president. And the young trooper said, no, he's even more important than that. After a moment, the supervisor finally asked, well, then who is it? And the young trooper said, I think it's Jesus because he's got Billy Graham for a chauffeur. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to keep that one for a long time. See, even if you're a a 90-year-old pastor who's taught all over the world, there's a potential to push the boundaries of the law. There's a potential to be deceivers because it's our human nature. There's a potential to be gossipers because it's our human nature. There's a potential to build barriers and to put walls around ourselves and say, this person I'm letting in and this person, they got to stay on the other side of the wall because I've got these barriers, and it's human nature to do it. Ephesians chapter 2, what we're going to look at this morning, is very much about the barriers that are put up sometimes in the church. Here's the problem in Ephesus in this first century church. You're you're holding this letter in your hand that was written 2,000 years ago, but Paul wrote it to this church in Ephesus in which these individuals were dealing with a very real human nature action. They had built some walls. Problem. Slavery existed in the first century. And it's not slavery like you're thinking of here in the United States in the 1800s, but slavery not based on racial issues, but rather on economic issues. So if some individual had amassed a lot of debt in their life and they couldn't pay the debt back, the person whom they owed the debt to could put them into the slave house and sell them on the auction block. And they were put into bondage until they could earn back the debt that they had acquired. Sometimes children were sold that way because of a parent's debt. So we've got people coming to a church setting in Ephesus who are worshiping together, and some of them are masters, and some of them are slaves. And the masters looked down on the slaves. But Paul's going to write to them and talk about, hey, remember who you were. You're going to be on this equal plane before Christ. You were all sinners before God the Father. Now, not only was there an issue with slaves being treated poorly by their masters and slaves getting angry at their masters, but then there was this issue. Women were treated like furniture in the first century. In the household, when a man married his wife, he treated her just a little bit better than his slave and usually just acquired her so that she would carry out the functions of household responsibilities. So you've got that issue between husbands and wives. Unbelieving husbands who had a wife come to Christ actually were divorcing their wives because she'd made such a radical decision without his consent. Now add to that and you've got the issue of the Greek culture. And the Greeks were so very, very proud of who they were. 
to the degree that they actually looked down on the rest of society and considered everyone else who was not Greek to be a barbarian. So you got the Greeks, you got the barbarians, and then the Greeks believed that their language was actually the language of the gods, small g. So you've got these four categories in this church in Ephesus, and Paul wants to remind them division has always been a heartache to God. And you go one step further and you find that there's this angry division between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, whenever you see the word Gentile in the Bible, it's not talking about a country or a race of people. It's talking about everyone who's not a Jew. So there's the Jews and everyone else, which are called the Gentiles in the Bible. And this division has always been a heartache to God, so much so that Jesus actually prayed in John 17 three times that we would be one so that when the world's on the outside looking in, looking at us as a group of people, it doesn't matter where we are at on the economic scale, we're all one. We're unified under Christ. So what is the question for you this morning as we step into this? My question for you, what's the barrier wall in your life? What's the dividing wall that you've built I want you to ponder that as we move through Ephesians 2 because we all have them to some degree. Some are higher than others. I want you to ponder that as we move in. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11. We're told that Ephesians is this crown of Paul's theological writing. Ephesians chapter 2 is the center jewel. Verse 11 says this, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, he's talking about the Jews, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, and having no hope and without God in the world. Now, they've got disunity. Disunity sometimes is really, really obvious. We have it in our country. Now, here's some real obvious ways. The church 20 years ago here in the United States, down in the South, pastor who's white of a very prosperous white church, leading his church, watching it grow, he has on his staff a janitor who's black. Man comes in each week. He doesn't worship at that church But he does his job. He does his task. This black janitor is a very, very gracious Christian. He just happens to worship at another church, but he's employed by this white church. So the pastor and the janitor become very good friends, start hanging out together, getting coffee together. Pretty soon, they're studying God's Word together. They're praying for each other's families together. One of the board members comes into the church on a Tuesday morning and sees the pastor praying with this black man calls him aside and says to him, we can't have that. That's bad for our image. So he goes to the rest of the board members. They form a coalition. They come to the pastor and they say to him, stop worshiping with that man. Stop spending time with that man. Pastor's response. Now mind you, this is only 20 years ago. Pastor's response to the board was, are you kidding me? In this day and age, you're telling me not to study God's Word with a black man? What's going on there? And they said, it's bad for our image in the community. We wouldn't want people thinking of our pastor that way. 
So the pastor said, nuts to you, essentially. And they formed a coalition against him. They went to the businesses in the community so that the gas station owners would not sell gas to him for his car. So that the owners of grocery stores would not sell him groceries. So the owners of clothing stores would not sell him clothing. The pastor was so pressured, he actually had a nervous breakdown. He resigned his church and had to go to a hospital to recover. Now that's an obvious one, right? We'd all look at that and say, what? Are you kidding me in the United States in this day and age? How could that exist? That's an obvious one. There's less obvious ones, but in this church in Ephesus, this is just part of their culture. This disunity is there just because that's what they've always known. It's because it's true. God did choose the Jews. They were the chosen people. Look with me on the screen, Amos 3.2. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. But he didn't choose them just so they would receive his blessing. He chose them so that they would be a representation to all the world to see what it looked like to do life with God. Not just so that they would be blessed, but there would be a revelation. Because from the very beginning, all the way back to the time of Abraham, it's been God's plan that he would show what it looks like to do life with God. Look with me at Genesis 12.3. He's speaking to Abraham here. All the families of the earth will be blessed because of what God was going to do through the Jews, everyone on planet earth. And specifically there, he's talking about what he's going to do through Jesus. So Israel is to be this conduit through which the knowledge of God is going to spread around the world to the entire world, but unfortunately, they never fulfilled their responsibility. They never did what they were called to do. And rather than being God's force on the earth, they prefer to look down their noses at people who were living very, very far from God. Here's a few examples for you. Because Jews consider Gentiles to be inferior and of no interest to God whatsoever, they just believe they couldn't be saved. This is, this is their response. Um, Jewish women, many times, when a Gentile woman, woman went into labor to give birth, they would not assist them because they didn't want to be known as someone who had helped another Gentile come into the world. Jewish businessmen, when they would leave the Holy Land, they'd go outside of Israel to another region to do business. When they came back into Israel, they would take all of their clothing off on the border, shake out all the dust from their clothing, take their shoes off, smack them together, knock the dust off their sandals, and then reclothe themselves and then step into the Holy Land. Why? They didn't want the dust of the Gentile world contaminating their world. Now, can you imagine that thinking? That's how far gone these individuals were in believing that God had no interest in the Gentile people to the degree that if a Jewish young man married a Gentile young woman, the family actually held a funeral for their son, believing him to be dead, having no interest in carrying on a relationship with him whatsoever. Do you know that Peter actually had that attitude? Peter had walked with Jesus three years. And then God said through Jesus to the disciples, go into all the world and spread the gospel so that people know who I am. And Peter yet still has this attitude. So when you see Acts chapter 10, I want you to see it up on the screen. You see a Peter who's just had his head knocked upside by God. Verse 28 says this. You, this is Peter speaking. You yourselves know how it is unlawful for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit with him. And yet, because God had shown up and talked to Peter, 
God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. See, it's always been God's plan to encompass every person in the earth with his forgiveness and his grace and his mercy. So why did God make Israel so distinct then? Why did they have these separate dietary laws and these separate marriage laws and these separate social laws? Well, he made them distinct so that people would recognize they didn't live and act like other people, that they were different. There was something unique about them. But Israel continually perverted God's laws, and they turned themselves into legalists. Now, the church today has very similar laws by which God put it out there for us in the form of commands that we would live differently. We were to be a distinct people. Now, you won't find me very often using the Bible translation called the message, but in this case, I'm going to make an exception because I want you to see how the message translated Ephesians 4.17. Look with me up on the screen. It talks about the church and how we're supposed to be living as a people. Verse 17, and so I insist, and God backs me up on this, that there be no going along with the crowd, the empty-headed, mindless crowd. Verse 22, everything, and I do mean everything, connected with the old way of life has to go. It's rotten through and through. Get rid of it. And then take on an entirely new way of life, a God-fashioned life, a life renewed from the inside and working itself into your conduct as God accurately reproduces his character in you. So, question. Can you live like that and not be a freak to society? Can you leave the old things behind in such a way that your friends haven't totally discounted you? See, there's this tension in being in the world but not being of the world. How do you walk and look like a Jesus follower yet still have an impact on people who are caught up in the culture? Because in Israel's case, they were supposed to be a light to the world about what it looks like to walk with God, and yet the danger was they became somewhat like the world in some cases, and their light became really, really dim. They're watching friends too much. Or in other cases, they became isolationist. And they became legalist, and they're such an extreme part of society, nobody wanted anything to do with them. So there's this tension pulling on the church to be in the world but not of the world. So what did the Jews do? Well, in their case, especially by the time Jesus had arrived on the scene, they had created a document called the Talmud, T-A-L-M-U-D. And the Talmud was basically a set of rules of do's and don'ts, things you could do and couldn't do up and beyond God's word. And so they had created this barrier around themselves to make themselves isolationist. And they've got this spiritual comfort zone. Because in the Jewish mind, they believed it was inconceivable that God would rescue a Gentile unless he became a Jew through circumcision and through keeping the laws. And Jesus was teaching him totally different than that. So make no mistake, the Gentile people had rejected God. They were standing way on the outside. They're far, far, far from God and seeing things at a distance. As a matter of fact, that's why Paul wrote what he did. And you'll see it in your notes this morning. These, these five forms of alienation, I want you to see it on the screen as well. But it's in your notes under verse 12. The, they were separate from Christ. They were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, meaning they had no biblical community whatsoever. And they're strangers to the covenants of the promise. They didn't know what it was to have a covenant with God. And they're without hope, verse number four, having no hope 
and they were without God in the world. So they had rejected him. You have people like that in your life this morning? You have people in your life who are far from God like the Gentiles? And, and they see everything at a distance. And it doesn't make sense to them. And they're, they're wondering what it means to be a person who can be righteous with God. Now, in many cases, in, like in the Gentiles, they had even gone to the point where they suppressed the truth about God. If you get a chance later today, read Romans chapter 1, because God addresses that very issue in the first chapter of Romans. He talks about why individuals, who even those who claim to be atheists, they're lying. They're not atheists, because God says there's no such thing as an atheist. He says, I've placed the knowledge of God in every man's heart. Everyone knows there's a God. Matter of fact, it's, it's wrapped up this way in verse 21. Even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. But Paul's about to tell us that's your past. That's who you used to be when you were far off. Go with me to verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Praise the Lord. That's what he's talking about. Those of us who know Jesus. So this, I put a few Greek words up on the screen this morning. Most of them are in your notes. They're not all going to be on the screen. But this first one, makron, I wanted you to get it down because it's the word for far off. It means those who are at a great distance away. And that's why I ask you, do you have people like that in your life this morning? Who, For them, God is just this... They're not even in the same universe. He's far off. They're not interested. Well, that's who we were. We were formerly Makron. But he says here, we were brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the second Greek word. It's the word engus. Why don't you say that word with me? It's kind of a fun word to say. One, two, three. Engus. Okay, here's what it means. To throttle. Okay, and, and like this, um, I, when I used to fly airplanes regularly, um, there, there's a, a, what we would call the joystick or the, the yoke that would sit between our legs, and if you pulled back on it, you throttled it back towards you, it would make the plane climb, right? Okay, so that's the phrase that's used here, to goose or en goose, to throttle. You're drawing something near to you. So who did the drawing of near? God did that. We were formerly far off, but we've been brought near. Now, here's the problem for the Jews. They believed they were near to God because of two reasons. God chose them, just like we were told in Ephesians 1. We were chosen of God. He chose us and predestined us before the foundation of the world. Well, the Jews were chosen. But the second reason is because they got God's temple. They're in the holy city of Jerusalem, and God gave them the blueprints for building a temple. So they've been chosen by God. They got God's temple, so they believe they got God's presence with them. So therefore, they believe they're near to God. And so in their mind, the only way to become near to God is to become one of them. But look at this writing really closely, because Paul, who is a Jew of Jews, who's been saved by Jesus, verse 13, he tells us that we were formerly far off. We've been brought near, not because of the temple, and not because we became Jewish, but because of Christ Jesus, because of the blood of Christ. So it's not the temple, it's not the Jews. So in Jesus, Paul's telling us this great barrier, this huge wall that's been surrounding us and separating us has been taken down in Christ. Go with me to verse 14. 
For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. So this barrier wall, very important imagery that's used here. Picture in your mind a a mirror on the platform, maybe a a tall, full-length mirror, and I've got a hammer in my hand, and I smack the mirror. It's going to break into a gazillion pieces, right? It's going to fragment. Well, that's the word that's used here, fragmos. This this word fragmos means um, something that has been hedged and separated. So Jesus has taken this thing, this barrier, this hedging, all these barriers that have been put up, He's taken them down. He's abolished this barrier because sin has been this great separator and it's put us into a million different pieces. But God wants to bring this mirror back together again so that we can see who we are in Jesus. Think of it this way. All the way back to the time of the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve. Eve is created out of Adam's bone. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. God says the two will be one, right? Adam looks at his wife and says, wow, she's cute, and then says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, the two of us will be one, and they commit sin, and then eventually they have two sons, sins present in the world, Cain kills Abel, and the family is fragmos, fractured. And so what was a family unit is now fragmented because of sin. And so a family becomes a tribe because Cain has to leave the area where they live. He can't live with them anymore. And that tribe fragments and becomes a region. And the region fragments and becomes a nation. And the nations fragment. And all of a sudden we're left with Rome and Syria and China, Israel, and bam, fighting. The fragmos. But we're told here that Jesus has abolished all of that. But there's a propensity that man still has to fracture. We still are putting up the walls. So what Paul is reminding them in verse 15, he's abolished all of this enmity. It's gone. And why did he use the word, this wall of barrier? Here's the reason why. There's a very real image in the mind of the Jews. And whether you lived up in Ephesus or down in Jerusalem, you're aware of this. Because every Jew is required to go to the temple. When they arrived at the temple in the first century, Everybody looked at a distance and could see the temple rising up above Jerusalem. It was the highest point. And at the sanctuary where the Holy of Holies was and the Ark of the Covenant was inside there, well, if you would step outside of that area of the temple, the thing surrounding it would be the court of men, and that's where the sacrifices took place. And then there's the court of women. And outside of that, on the very perimeter of this big square, huge area, it's called the court of the Gentiles. Now, somebody got it in their mind that they needed to put up no trespassing signs. And so this image was put up. I want you to see it up on the screen of something that archaeologists found within the last 50 years or so. This is one of the no trespassing signs. It's written in the Greek language, but it's, it's authentic. It's the actual stone. And there were many of these that were erected right at the wall where the Gentiles' court ended and the Jewish court began they put up this. Let me read it to you. This is what it says. 
No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Translation, trespassers will be shot. Okay, that's what it's saying. Don't come into our territory. It's fine. You've got your space. We've got ours. Now, the Gentiles that are coming there, they're coming because they wanted to know what it looked like to worship God. So for all of us, Jews and Gentiles, to be reconciled, this wall of separation, all the no trespassing signs had to be taken down. What did it cost for that deconstruction project to take place? It cost the blood of Jesus. That's what it required, the de- Christ's death on the cross. So when we think of Jesus' death on the cross and we think of the crucifixion, we think of a couple of events that took place. One is we know the sky went black, right? About three in the afternoon or maybe around noon, the whole Middle East turned to night. And then we're told also that at the point where Jesus cried out, it is finished, there was a massive megos seismos, big earthquake. And then there was a third thing. Remember that the veil of the temple was torn in two? We're told that in Mark and some of the other translations. Look with me on the screen. Mark 15, 38. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What is that? When Jesus died, the work on the cross was complete. And this veil was a woven tapestry, 12 inches thick, about 30 feet high, and it hung in the Holy of Holies, separating man from being able to go into the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. It meant hands off. You're not supposed to be here. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn in two. God did that. Man could not have ripped it physically. It was 12 inches thick, woven tapestry, and it was shred. Why? Because man now had access to God. That's the imagery that's going on here. So that's why Paul wrote in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ. So for us, New Hope, the only identity that really matters is our identity in Jesus. Because God's original intent for all of mankind was that Jew and Gentile would come together and worship him. So go with me on to verse 16. This gets really, really interesting here. And, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Now, I'm thinking Romans 5.8 in my mind when I read that, that God demonstrated his own love toward us and while that we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You familiar with that verse? Okay, while we were yet sinners, Jesus went ahead and carried out this action for us. Why is that so critical when he says those who are far away and those who are near? First of all, who's those who are far away? Who's he talking about here? Gentiles, right. Those who are far away, Gentiles. Those who are near? Jews, yeah. So he's got these two people groups. And he says, through him, you all have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, think in terms of the fact that we were far off. Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. We were far away from God. And yet, he says, since he brought you near, he throttled you in, you've been brought near through him, and you have access through one spirit to the Father. First of all, that that verse right there defends the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. 
But here's why I wanted you to focus on this. It's in your notes, not on the screen, but the word prosagoge. And it's used of an individual who in ancient times controlled the courtroom of the king. So envision this with me. Let's imagine we've got the king on his throne. He's sitting up on an elevated position. And he's holding court. All of those who attend him in the court are gathered around. And there's one individual who controls access to the king. Now that individual, just hear me out on this, stands at a distance from the king. He actually stands at a door in the courtroom. So the prosagoge is over at the back of the courtroom. And the prosagoge stands guard over the king's court. And he hears... He listens to the person's request, and then he announces to the king, Your majesty, so-and-so requires an audience with you. The prosagoge determines whether or not that individual can come in, and he announces this person as they come in that they have access to the king. So this prosagoge is a very, very important person. He's the link in the chain. The prosagoge, we're told, is Jesus, and he stands at the door, and he's the one that determines that he's the one that has the the right to decide who has access to God's presence. The only door into his kingdom is through his son, Christ Jesus the Lord. That's why Paul has written this this way, this one who grants access to the king. So, you've got God, the Son, the prosagoge, granting access. Paul says you're coming to Him in one spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit. And who are you coming to? You're coming to the Father. So through Him, we have access to the Father. you got all three on your side. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. That's why Paul goes one step further in verse 19. He said, if you got all three, let me remind you again of who you are. Verse 19, so then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Hagios is the word there. And are of God's household. And here's the last Greek word for today. It's in your notes, but you'll see this one on the screen. Poroikos. Now, poroikos was always used of an individual who lived in a land, but they didn't have the rights of citizenship. Illegal immigration is a big deal in our news these days, right? We've got people living in our country that we say that they don't have the rights of U.S. citizens. Well, that's this word right here, parikokos. You've got an individual living in this area without the rights of citizenship, and Paul's saying, you're no longer one of those. You're not an alien. You're not a stranger. You, there's no guest in God's kingdom. There's no illegal immigrants. There's no such thing as a second-class citizen. The only citizens of heaven are God's saints. Uh, Especially if you were raised with a Catholic background, you might struggle with this, but just hear me out. This word that's used here, when it says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, the word hagios there is talking about you. Uh, if, If you have a Catholic background, you might be thinking, wait, wait. Saints are those people they put on the sides of churches, those names like St. Matthew and St. Mark and St. Michael. And 
I never heard of a St. Jeremy or a St. Chris or a St. Tony. Scripture says you're holy. You are hagias. That's the word saint that's being associated with you. You're a citizen of God's kingdom. There's no hierarchy. Yes, there are those who worked at the foundation of the church, but God says He sees you as holy. And then He goes one step further to tell you who you are in Jesus. He says you're a member of the household of God. Look with me very closely. You are God's household. That means you're a member of the family. Now, I don't know how it works in your family, but in my family, um, my kids raid my refrigerator and freely. And, and Derek no longer lives at our home because he's married and he has his own home, but he still comes to our home and eats, okay? So oh, we have this tradition in our house on Friday nights. We do Friday night pizza together as a family, and, and uh, Derek and Kristen come over and and we have fun together, and I've already bought the pizza, okay? So Friday night, I'm looking across the kitchen, and there's my son Derek guzzling my orange juice, all right? Now, I want the orange juice for myself for the next morning, but the next morning, I go to the refrigerator, and it's not in the refrigerator. The, the container's in the wastebasket because it's empty. Well, I didn't say to him, you're banished from the kingdom, okay? He, <laughs> I didn't do that. Why? Because... He's my son, and I love him, and, and I reluctantly want to share with him because I'm fallen, okay? <laughs> but the, the truth is, God is our Father, and we're members of His household. We're no longer strangers and aliens on the outside. We're citizens. He's brought us in with all the rights of the members of the household. So, you know, maybe young gals, you can really appreciate this. Your car breaks down, who are you going to go to? If you've got a loving father, you're going to say, Dad, I need help. Okay, that, that issue in your life might be very real. Father, my heart is hurting. I have this need. What Paul's reminding us is, since you've got God the Father, God the Son, your prosagago, and the Holy Spirit, and your members of his household, your father is compassionate and passionate about you. So stop the sibling rivalry. That's what he wants them to know. Stop focusing on yourself. Start thinking about who you are in Christ. That's why he wraps it up this way in verse 20, the way he does. Having, verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now, it's not that the apostles and the prophets are the foundation. That's not what he's saying. They laid the foundation. We, as the church, stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. No one can lay a foundation. Jesus has already done that. We're told that in 1 Corinthians 3.10. No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. But here's what I want you to see. If you take something home with you today, take this home with you. Go back to verse 21 and 22, and it says we are part of a whole building, right? Verse 21, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing. If you've got your own Bible this morning and you don't mind writing in it, you might want to circle the word growing because as you look at that, you see that's not a passive word. Right? 
Growing is an action word. In other words, we haven't arrived. There's more saints being added to the body. Those coming to New Hope who are discovering Jesus Christ and are becoming believers. The building is continuing to expand and it will continue to expand until Jesus returns because those who are far off are being brought near. Those who are far from God are being reconciled to God. So for you, if you took communion this morning and and you're a believer in Jesus, you're no longer at enmity with God, not because you took communion, but because you profess that you believe in Jesus. You're no longer at enmity with God, but chances are you've got somebody in your world who is at enmity with God, who's far off. And they need to look at you as someone who can show them what it means to be righteous, who knows what it means to walk as one who's been reconciled, who's been one of those little pieces of the mirror that's been picked up and put back into the hole again. You're no longer fragmented and broken away. That's why we've been told here in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18, this is where I'm ending this morning, Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. If you are a person here this morning who believes you have no role in the church, you can't find a place to serve, I'm here to tell you God gave you that right there. God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What does that mean? That means you're a representative to those who are far off of what it looks like to be brought near. Our requirement is to bring down those walls so that people can actually see what it looks like. So we've got this enormous privilege. We're part of the construction project. That's what we're told. And some of us are are laying stones and some of us are putting the concrete down. Some of us are cleaning up. Some of us are project managers. This is the role that Israel was originally given. But now God has entrusted it to the church to be the conduit through which the knowledge of God would spread to the entire world who are watching us. That's the challenge for the church. And it can barely be any sharper that the person who's far off can be brought near. So, question for you. I told you I would ask it again at the end. What does it look like in your life to have a barrier? What kind of walls have you put up? I'll tell you one that I'm very familiar with because I have a propensity to it. And I know it's common among most people. So I feel kind of safe in saying it, okay? There's a propensity among most people to predetermine who will listen to the gospel message and who won't. So very quickly, we put up walls about who we're willing to share the faith with because we might try and decide based on economic standing or social standing who's going to listen and who's going to tune us out and every time I do that God will knock me upside the head just like he did Peter and say you dummy look at that person responded you never thought they would but I proved myself again God always proves himself that way just in the way that we think he won't show up he shows up so I don't know what the barriers are in your life What are those walls you've built up that you need to ask God to take down? But here's a truth that I know. 
you can't draw anyone closer to God and help them to see what He looks like than you are close to God yourself. So we sing a song in church called Draw Me Close to You. And that song is really a song of surrender. And I'm going to encourage you this morning to make that a prayer of your own heart. That God will draw you so close to Himself that it just leaks out of you. And everyone can tell that you're really close to God. And you can show them what it looks like. So can I pray with you right now? We'll pray that God will help us with this issue, taking down these walls so that we can let others see what it looks like to walk with God. Let's pray. Father, we we have heard your word this morning and we've looked at the historical information and and we look at what we believe it to be saying to us personally. But it's only real and active when your Holy Spirit makes it that way. So God, we're at this point right now when we invite the activity of the Holy Spirit in in our life. Your Spirit speaking to us about how You want us to respond to this information. Some of us, Father, would willingly admit that we're so far from You, it's very hard to think of drawing someone else close. God, help us first to surrender that issue. And for those of us, Father, who are believers in Christ and consider ourselves mature, God, help us to evaluate whether or not we have barriers in our life. Have we shut people out? Those whom you want to call to yourself, but we're stopping them. Help us to evaluate that, Father, in in an earnest way. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.